Hi, welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern day woman and her vital role in shaping society. I'm one of your hosts, Glenn McKay, a former executive director and a current board member of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by Eagle Forum's political director, Tabitha Walter. Hi, everyone. Today we are joined by Congressman Chip Roy from Texas. Chip is a husband to Kara and father to Charlie and Virginia. He is a former federal prosecutor and has served in top leadership positions for several Texas officials, including Governor Rick Perry, Attorney General Kim Paxton, and Senator Cruz. Chip was most recently the Vice President of Strategy for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Chip, you have been a friend of Eagle Forum and our state affiliate for many years. We are so grateful for you and thankful you'd take the time to come on the podcast. Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you guys inviting me to join. I certainly have uh, enjoyed working with Eagle Forum over the years on numerous issues and many battles and, uh, and enjoy doing that even more now that I'm in Congress. And, uh, you know, it's just a great opportunity to visit with you guys. We're trying to get this country moving forward. We're up here trying to force some votes. I think we ought to be doing our job. If we're asking grocery store clerks and truck drivers and first responders and nurses and doctors and everybody out there to do their job. We should be doing ours. So we're up here trying to get everybody to do, do their job and, and vote and uh, try to get this country going forward. Well, good. We're, we're so glad that you're there and the battles seem to never end. So we have plenty of stuff to work together on. <laughs> um, you have a, a unique perspective as a member, not only because of your experience in the private sector, but also because you've served in state government, in the executive branch, and then also in the legislative branch as a staffer and now a member of Congress. Give us a little insight into how that has uniquely shaped your perspective. Well, having been, as you pointed out, a staffer as well as then executive branch, I'll tell you one observation is, is it gives me a little bit more humility in the legislative branch about telling the executive branch how easy it is for them to go execute, right? Because when you've got the duty, when I was first assistant attorney general under attorney general Ken Paxton in Texas, and you know I, when I took over, in that capacity is the number two with 4,200 lawyers. The governor, Abbott, had been the AG. He'd left. All the senior leadership was gone. We had 28,000 live cases. We had several before the Fifth Circuit. We had a, we had a life issue that we were uh, defending, a, a uh, pro-life measure in the state of Texas. We had some other issues that we were fighting for. And those things, we had to step in and you have to start executing. Like there's no sit around and debate, right? This isn't a debate club. And so it's put a little bit more perspective for me in the, in the legislative branch about being mindful of what the executive branch has to do to go execute uh, the laws that we pass. Um, the other thing that's done as a staffer is I feel sorry for my staff um, because, uh, you know, I have pretty high demands as a member of Congress who's been a staffer. And it's hard to, it's frankly, it's hard to staff someone who kind of knows how the staffing role works. And for me to have to figure out how to divvy up those responsibilities and, and, uh, decide how to make sure I give them more work instead of doing it myself as I want to do as a, as a former staffer. But, you know, uh, we've got, I think right now, the most important thing we need to do is get Congress working again for the people. Uh, that's why I'll talk about it more in a minute, depending on what you want me to talk about. But we've got a bipartisan bill that I hope to get a vote on tomorrow, believe it or not, in this crazy circumstance. So uh, I think we need to make Congress work again. Absolutely. We, we agree with you 100% on that. Um, now, your path to Congress wasn't exactly easy. Um, in 2018, you won the Republican runoff with 52% of the vote and then won the general election with, with less than 1%. Uh, 
Um, this is exactly why every vote matters. Then you go to Washington to be one out of 435 votes in the US Congress, which is only half of one third of the government structure in Washington as a whole. And then on top of that, you're currently in the minority. <laughs> I'm sure all of that can seem really daunting. Talk to us a little about that and what it is that drives you and keeps you going. Well, on your first point uh, about getting elected, every vote does matter. Um, you know, this isn't a political call, but uh, but I'll say that votes add up, uh, you know, uh, such that every single vote literally matters. Um, we had 18 candidates in the primary for the election I ran in 2018 in the Republican primary. Uh, so that mattered a lot. And we were able to get through that, as you point out, then in the runoff, we, we won with 50, it was 52%, 48%. It was a couple thousand votes that decided that election. Um, and then in the general election, we won by about 10,000 votes, which was right around 2.8 or 9% of the electorate. Um, 10,000 sounds like a lot, but when you've got that many votes being cast, uh, so upwards of 300,000 and change, you, then, you know, it, it, it's a pretty close election. So, um, you know, keep in mind how many elections get decided by a few hundred votes mm -hmm. and then how that can then tip the scales of who has control of the House of Representatives or the Senate, whatever the election is. Um, and then in terms of coming to D.C. And, and figuring out how to function, if you will, when you're at, you stole my line, I often use I'm 135th of one half of one third of government. And so don't blame me is basically what that means. But <laughs> but when you're trying to get things done, I think the trick and, and I've had a little bit of a maybe a little bit of a head start on some of my freshman colleagues because of having been a staffer and worked on this stuff before. You have to find a way to build principle, uh, build relationships with members on principled uh, positions. So the, the, the gentleman that I'm co-sponsoring the bill with tomorrow that's going to come to a vote on the floor of the House, Democrat Dean Phillips from Minnesota, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but we agree on some key issues. We wrote a piece in, December, in uh, January, for example, about our belief, our shared belief, that we need to stop continuing our war in Iraq based on a 20-year-old authorization of force. We should uh, potentially continue operations if Congress votes on it and decides that we should uh, in certain areas, um, but that we have an obligation in Congress to stand up and have our vote count if we're going to be sending men and women in uniform into harm's way. And then we can't just let it continue to linger endlessly. So we wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, with two other Democrats, two other Republicans, and an independent making that case. And we we're building up a relationship on shared values. We both agree the legislative process is badly broken. We need to work together to fix it. So this week, or you know, we introduced it a couple weeks ago, we introduced legislation that's more targeted. It's not a big $3 trillion monster bill cooked up in back rooms by a bunch of lobbyists. It's a bill that addresses very specific concerns of small businesses that are getting hammered by shutdown, preventing uh, people from being able to go into restaurants and so forth. So we make some fixes to the PPP bill, and it's a bipartisan bill and has massive support from outside groups, and we hope to get it passed tomorrow. But that's how you get things done up here. Well, and to your point, you know, though you're a Republican, we do think of you more as an ideologue in a, in a very positive way. And what I mean is that you operate from a place of moral conviction and political independence. And we just don't see that often in Washington. I, I think we can by and large say that the focus for many seems to be self-serving and how they get back to Washington, but we really see the opposite from you. And I wanna talk about two examples of that for you to respond to. Uh, around this time last year, 
you single-handedly stopped Speaker Pelosi from unanimously passing a $19 billion disaster relief package after she had sent everyone home early for Memorial Day recess. So our listeners probably will need a little background. This would have been possible for the Speaker to pass this bill when everyone had left town because of this parliamentary tool called unanimous consent. And it's usually used to expedite the passage of non-controversial bills, so like naming post offices, but not for controversial bills that would spend $19 billion. So if I remember correctly, you're headed to the airport, you turn around and put a stop to Pelosi's shenanigans. Um, And then in another example, you stop Democrats from pushing another trillion dollar spending bill through by a voice vote. So that means that Speaker Pelosi had brought the bill to the floor for a vote under a rule that wouldn't allow for any kind of debate or amendments. You were just, and you were able to stop that and force members of, con- members of Congress to be put on record. So I think that most Americans would agree with you that one, members should be present for voting when spending billions of taxpayer dollars, and two, members should be recorded when voting so that their constituents can hold them accountable. But you've been vilified by both sides for both of these things. You know, you're accused of either not caring for people by one side or for political grandstanding by the other. And other members are annoyed with you because, you know, their votes are being recorded, but they're missing fundraisers and other things. And if I remember, you were actually missing your 15th wedding anniversary. Um, I remember that very specific number because I read that, so I know I'm right on that. <laughs> but all that to say, you know, you've given up a lot for the sake of more accountability and more transparency and in order to advance important issues while you're in the minority. So thank you for that. But help us understand why you always seem to be a voice of resistance. I mean, I think one of your colleagues said uh, freshmen should be in a posture of observing. So that would certainly be a more an easier path to take, but you've chosen to just take the bull by the horns. Um, So give us some insight into that and why you've chosen to take on these fights that you have. Well, I appreciate that. You know, look, I would, I would phrase it a little bit differently. I think uh, uh, I have a duty, a responsibility, if you will, to my constituents, right? Uh, You say, well, you should be in a posture of listening or, or observing. Okay. I mean, I do a lot of that, but I should be in a posture of representing. And uh, my constituents elected me very much to hit the ground running and to do what I said I would do. And when I campaigned, I campaigned on the idea that we should return uh, Congress to the people, that Congress should be reactive to the people, that we should focus on doing what every family does and balancing the budget. We should secure the border. We should have health care freedom so you can get access to your doctor instead of having an insurance bureaucrat or government bureaucrat decide your health care. Um, I think we should make sure our men and women in uniform have the tools they need and the care when they get home. These are the things that I ran on. And so we, uh, we talked about wanting to limit spending to within our means. And last year, you said it a year ago, this last Sunday, $19.5 billion bills being passed by unanimous consent on the floor of the House of Representatives. That means we're not doing our job to vote. I believe you should have a recorded vote. You should put your name down and say whether you support that or don't. Um, look, and that's tough, right? Because if you vote against, um, you know, dollars that are set aside for disaster relief, then of course an opponent, and it's going to happen to me this fall, are going to run ads saying you hate people and you want them to die in floods and you want to write. Say, no, I think we ought to actually just have a responsible way of dealing with these things and know what the federal government's job is because we're $25 trillion in debt and we can't continue to spend money we don't have. And no family wants to leave a country that is bankrupt to our kids or grandkids. And that's, that's what we're doing if we're not careful. Let me make one other point about this because it's very relevant today. Today, three hours ago, I was out in front of the, the backside of the House uh, 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 
the, the floor of the House where we had a press conference. And our press conference was announcing a lawsuit that we filed against the uh, uh, House of Representatives, essentially, because they passed proxy voting 10 days ago, two weeks ago. What does that mean? They passed a new rule that for the first time in our entire history as a nation, 231 years, we would allow members of Congress to stay at home and give their vote, their, their delegate their responsibility to vote to another member by proxy, up to 10 members. So we have at least one member of the Democratic uh, majority who has the proxy for at least five other members. But think about that. We're totally turning on, on its head the notion of what representation means or looks like. So we filed suit. And so why do I bring that up in the context of the 19 billion? Because of this. When I went to the floor last year to object, it was because we should vote. In March, my friend Thomas Massey from Kentucky did the same thing. And he raised the ire of a bunch of Republicans. Like, well, why would you do that? And now what we're finding is a whole bunch of Republicans are jumping now on this litigation that I helped spearhead in order to uh, make the point that we should have to have a quorum and we should have to vote. And to that, I say, welcome to the club. In other words, leadership means going out on principle, making a case, standing on it, and then fighting for it. And when you do that, it's funny how many times I've seen people start to rally around because it's the right thing to do. You expect us to represent you right? You as a constituent give your representation to one member and one member only. You don't give that to another member. I can't give that to someone else. So I should stand up and fight for that. I should vote. And when Thomas Massey went to the floor, he was objecting to us voting by unanimous consent or voice vote is what it was going to be on the $2 trillion bill in response to the virus. And so he was right. We should have had a roll call vote on it. Because what we found is there are provisions in it that nobody liked. The unemployment insurance provision that pays people more not to work than to work. The provisions in there that went to the Kennedy Center and the NEA and all these other things, rather than helping small businesses. So of course we should vote. Of course we should debate. Of course we should amend. This is not hard stuff. That's what we should do. We had to take a little break because Congressman Roy had to go to the floor to vote in person, I might add. <laughs> Um, which is perfect. We left off talking about proxy voting. Let's flesh that out a little more. You made a great statement about this, which is a good reminder to all of us. We didn't allow proxy voting during the Civil War, the Spanish flu, while the Capitol was on fire, or in the, the wake of 9-11. And then you said you were filing this lawsuit to ensure the People's House remains the people's, not a body dictated by the whims of a few dozen members. So everyone's working from home right now. I mean, we're Zooming as we speak. We have the technology to meet in this sort of fashion, but there is a purpose to meeting in person. It's actually constitutional. So can you talk about how the language in the Constitution on words like meeting or present actually means face-to-face -face encounters and yeah. why it's so important? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. The, to be clear for anybody who's not clear, there are two issues at play. The first issue that we're litigating today is whether a proxy vote is constitutional. That is, as I think I might have explained quickly, but I'll, I'll, in more detail, you can't turn your vote over to someone else, right? I can't, as literally just happened about 15 minutes ago on the floor of the House for the first time in the history of our nation, a member took the floor and took the microphone and voted on behalf of another member. That literally just occurred. And 231 years, that's never happened. 
And we are bothered by that, those of us who filed suit. Uh, and we raise the issue because we don't believe that you can turn your uh, duty, your obligation to vote for your constituents over to another. They delegated that to you. You can't delegate that to someone else. That's our view. We also believe it dilutes the vote for constituents, dilutes the vote for members. The, the, now that's one issue. The second issue is whether or not we can in fact have any kind of remote voting. I would fast forward to modern times. If you're a contract lawyer and there's probably some lawyers that watch this sort of thing, you will note that usually in your board uh, language, when you're outlining the requirements of any board for a corporation, nonprofit, whatever, you will specify if a quorum can be reached virtually, right? You'll, can you get a quorum by conference call? Can you get a quorum by video call? Or do you require certain votes to occur in person and then allow certain things to be done uh, by conference call? Uh, the Constitution contemplated in 1789, it contemplated in-person meeting and it contemplated a quorum of 50% of the body of the House coming together to make decisions. As uh, I think I noted earlier, uh, the founders were very specific about it and dealt with the yellow fever at the time that killed 5,000 people in Philadelphia out of 50,000. Today, that would mean 180,000 dead in Philadelphia, right? 10% of the current population. Yet they didn't disband the rules of the Constitution. What they did was, and there's a great letter, from James Madison to George Washington, written in October of 1793. I mean, think about that. The father of the Constitution to the father of our country, writing down all of the complexities of the situation and what they should do about it. And essentially, they decided, I mean, and ultimately, Congress acted by having to pass a law saying we can move to another location and go change and go, but, but still meet. And if you go look in the whole structure of the Constitution is built around our meeting, debating, voting in person. Uh, I believe that virtual voting is currently unconstitutional. If you want to do it, you need to amend the Constitution. But I also believe proxy voting is unconstitutional at all times, no matter where you vote, whether you're voting remotely or in person. And so we're challenging that second point right now and we should have a debate about what to do for remote voting if you ever need it. But like I said, we've gotten through world wars, civil war, the burning of the Capitol in 1812, pandemics, uh, you know, they managed to get through yellow fever in, in 1793 uh, without throwing the constitution out the window. Yeah, I read the lawsuit today, which I don't do very often, but I think it's an excellent resource for a history lesson. Um, it goes through each of the definitions and what that definition meant at the time that the Constitution was framed. And so I recommend anyone to read it. We, we'll post that resource along with this podcast as well. That'd be great. So the whole reason we're talking about prox proxy voting is because we are in the middle of still battling COVID-19. Um, and everything just still feels so divided. It's this idea of absolutes again. You're either on one side or the other. You're either for reopening or you're for staying at home. Um, but we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of that. And it seems that you have a very balanced um, and unique perspective, not only as a cancer survivor who was once immunosuppressed, but also as the son of a man who survived polio. So talk to us about those experiences in your perspective. Sure. I mean, I've talked to my dad a lot. He's 77. He survived polio, as you point out, in 1949. He was a seven-year-old diagnosed with polio uh, the same uh, fall that my grandfather's diagnosed with cancer and passed away Thanksgiving weekend, leaving my grandma as a single mom in West Texas to raise my polio-stricken father, who, who doctors said wasn't going to survive. 
and she fought like heck to keep them out of iron lungs, which you might equate today to ventilators, right? As we were putting people on them, uh, the iron lungs were the ventilators of the 1940s and 50s. We lost about 25,000 or so, I think, uh, kids to polio, 300,000 uh, that were stricken by, keep in mind, different population base at the time. And, you know, look, my father's perspective on this is pretty straightforward. Um, the pursuit of happiness means something, and you want to, he wants to see his grandson, my son, play literally, he wants to see his granddaughter, my daughter, swim, he wants to, you know, meet up with us for Easter. Uh, but look, my, my mom and dad, my mom is 71, my dad's 77, they've stayed largely sequestered in Mount Pleasant, Texas, up in Northeast Texas, and have done so to, for their health and well-being, and it's the right thing to do for, you know, a couple months, we're trying to figure all this out. Um, and we can figure out how to protect the elderly. I mean, keep in mind as we look at the numbers, the data, it's highly persuasive that well over half, well over half nationwide of the population that has been impacted by this are, are people that are in nursing homes and uh, assisted living centers. This is why on March, I think 12th or 13th, so early, my office put out a let's protect our seniors effort to focus in on the actual problem. And, you know, those of us who were studying it hard, even two and a half months ago, three months ago, knew that that was really driving the situation. I don't know what went in through the decision-making of Governor Cuomo in New York and others, I'll leave that to other people, but putting people who were sick back into nursing homes and assisted living centers makes absolutely no sense. And that's what occurred. And we've seen where roughly 60% of the overall deaths have occurred in between six and seven states, uh, depending, the numbers move a little bit. And so uh, we need to, uh, look at all of this. This is the kinds of things that Congress ought to be doing, having hearings, trying to figure out exactly where the problem is. But we can address this issue while having our, our, our way of life continuing to operate society open uh, by just literally wash our hands, protect our elderly, uh, and make sure that we adapt modestly as they did during the polio pandemic where they might shut a pool down or a water fountain, adjust a little bit, but they kept their way of life going. They still went to church, they still figured out how to uh, function and keep economies going. Uh, and keep our way of life going. That's what I think we ought to be doing. I think that's what we're seeing work in Texas, Florida, Georgia, other places. We see these numbers continuing to hold the line and decline. Um, and unfortunately, it's frankly places where you had massive lockdowns, uh, where we're seeing some of the negative uh, consequences. One other point, the second order implications of this are massive. The number of cancer diagnoses has been declining. Now think about that. Do you think fewer people have cancer? Hmm. Do you think fewer people know they have cancer? That's a really big deal. As a cancer survivor, I was diagnosed nine years ago this coming uh, July with stage three Hodgkin's lymphoma. If that were today and I had to wait a month or two, maybe I'd have had stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Maybe it had gotten into my bones. And you know, maybe my, maybe my Democratic opponents would be okay with that. But my, my point is, is I am um, a standing example of, of, of early, well, early detection, I say early, when I figured it out, I was asymptomatic. And I was, I just happened to think something was wrong and pushed my doctor on it. We did a, a, a x-ray and found the cancer. Imagine tomorrow a woman wakes up and finds out she has stage four breast cancer that she could have found out in March she had stage two breast cancer, yeah. but we locked down all of our hospitals and shut down our ability for doctors to carry out their jobs. Suicide rates go up twice as much when you have uh, a serious uh, economic situation where you got, like we do, 40 million unemployed. Uh, opioid addiction, uh, substance abuse goes way up. Um, other second order health impacts go up. We're not doing all the things we ought to be doing. So look, there's a lot that goes into this that we ought to all just step back, do what's right for our families and our well-being, 
but we've got to be able to have jobs and have uh, our way of life continue as well. Those are excellent points. And um, that's part of the problem, right, is we're speaking in absolutes most times instead of understanding or um, acknowledging that this is a very complex issue and the reopening of America is just as complex. But you mentioned your grandmother. Um, you know, moms are forced to balance a lot of things right now. Um, many are not only working from home, but they're also homeschooling, trying to help their families figure out this new normal. Um, tell us about your grandmother. She's been a great source of inspiration for you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, both my mom, my grandmother, um, a lot of the women in my life, my dad too, of course, but uh, have been major influences. My mom sacrificed a lot uh, to raise me and to uh, navigate through, you know, all the things you do when you're raising a young child. And she, she, she put a lot on the line for that. My grandmother's an interesting story because of what she faced. And I pointed out she was a single mom in West Texas in 1949. She had a two-year-old, my uncle, uh, a seven-year-old, my dad, who then had polio, and her chief of police husband, chief of police of a small West Texas town, Sweetwater, um, was uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer. And he was moving up. He'd actually just gone to an FBI Academy training thing here in DC, uh, stayed at the Hotel Washington, uh, right, you know, right down here off Pennsylvania Avenue near the White House, had been up here for a few months, about a year before he was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, it was kind of moving up law enforcement. And um, he, uh, you know, when, when an old man, he was 30, I think seven, I think. And um, he was, and I was about 39 when I got cancer, but uh, he um, passed away. And so there, my, my grandma is a uh, single mom out there in West Texas. And uh, so, you know, what did she do? Did she curl up in a ball and give up? No. Uh, she worked with, with her family. She took a couple of jobs. She woke up at four in the morning to do uh, therapy for my dad so that he could keep walking uh, despite the polio. And he made it through and survived. And now he's still walking. He's 77. It's rough, but he's still walking at 77. And that's because of how much she worked hard to get him what he needed. And he went down to the uh, Lions camp down at Kerrville and worked with a bunch of the kids down there every summer for a few years years and did a bunch of other stuff and then she ran as a, uh, a single mom she ran for county clerk became the first woman elected county clerk nolan county um in uh the early 1950s and uh served as county clerk and um you know kind of shattered her own glass ceiling uh cc hillary clinton um but you know she 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 shattered her own little uh, glass ceiling in in uh, nolan county texas and was able to go do that and then took care of my my dad and my uncle um, and look, I've, I've learned a lot from her about perseverance. She grew up it, during the Depression. Her dad lost their farm in the Depression, not unlike a lot of American families. Um, moved into town, and my, my great-grandfather, her father, was the janitor then for the, his remaining days. He lost, lost the farm and moved into town as a janitor at the, I think, first Methodist church in the, I think, the local radio station or something. Um, and he did that for the rest of his life. And then, um, you know, my, my great-grandfather, grandparents took care of my dad and uh and you know when my grandma was working and uh the community would help out and so I learned a lot about community about how important it is to help each other out um it's one of one of the reasons why I, I try to focus on that when when all this is breaking out just focusing on our community in, in in Austin San Antonio the hill country that we should all work together to help our seniors pay attention to those in need help them out get the stuff they need um protect them and uh, that's how you do it. You don't solve problems from Washington, D.C. If you think you're going you're mistaken. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. You know, we're here to follow our constitutional duty to protect this country and keep it strong in a, in a national sense. But, uh, you know, you solve problems truly at the local level and communities. That's how you help people. Absolutely. I, I think that goes to show that the way that you live your life and the choices that you make 
can affect future generations. And so your grandma paved a path for you to be where you are today and for you to, to make a difference in, in our nation. Um, so let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about uh, elections. And I wanna put a disclaimer in here first. Uh, for legal purposes, we wanna make clear that Engage with Eagle Forum has not endorsed Chip Roy because we are a project of Eagle Forum and are precluded from doing so because of our nonprofit status. However, Eagle Forum PAC has proudly endorsed Chip Roy and looks forward to seeing a victory in November. So let's dive into your campaign. Election day is fast approaching and you have a well-funded opponent, Wendy Davis. Davis is best known for her successful 13-hour filibuster on the Senate floor to block a 20-week abortion ban. So you better believe that pro-abortion groups are sinking a ton of money into her campaign. Chip, will you fill us in on the dynamics of your race right now? Sure, happy to. First of all, my wife, uh, I think, puts it better than anybody when she says, well, not all that enamored of you winning again and going back to Congress, but I sure as hell don't want Wendy Davis to be up in Congress. So I think that is the way some people feel about it. Um, and and I, I take that with a, a dose of humility that, you know, it, and it's hard. Let me let a side note. It's hard on, on Kara. It's hard on my family, right? It's just like it is for every member. Uh, but I always remind people it's not as hard as when our men and women in uniform go away on a year-long uh, tour and they're away from their families for that period of time. I, I go home most weekends and have been blessed to be able to see my family. But but it's hard on her. She has to carry the burden as she did when I was going through cancer and everything else. Um, and let me tell you, you know, haul her on here to talk about my opponent. Uh, with whom she's got very serious disagreements on a whole host of issues. Um, I think this is going to be a very clear choice, right? You, you either want someone who believes in the power of the individual, the power of community, the power of Texas to be able to solve its problems, or believes that Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, Washington bureaucrats and the Democrats here in this town uh, have the best solutions for the people of Texas and the people of Central Texas. Um, clearly, we disagree on life. Clearly, we disagree on uh, issues involving uh, the the scope of government and healthcare, and mandating who you can see and not see, and what what people might describe as Medicare for all, but that ultimately means Medicare for none. It blows up Medicare and then upends our healthcare system entirely. Um, you know whether it's the aspects of the Green New Deal, whether whether she embraces it in name or not. Uh, let's be clear who my opponent would support as Speaker of the House and who she would saddle up with in Washington. And it's very clear um, who that would be. Uh, and, and look, AOC and the radical left that has grabbed hold of the Democratic Party in Washington, they're just giddy that the independent oil and gas operators are getting hammered by this and are giddy at the prospect of maybe trying to get them closed down when that's the backbone of our economy, the backbone, backbone of our energy independence, and, and frankly, uh, that funds our schools, funds our hospitals, and, and a great deal of the good things going on in Texas. I'm optimistic, of, not to get too far off the campaign, but I'm optimistic of an economic bounce uh, that we get out of this post-pandemic because the fundamentals were so strong in February. Our job is to keep businesses afloat, uh, not let them you know, uh, crater. That's why I've been working so hard on bipartisan legislation to get the fixes to the PPP so that uh, businesses can get funding and stay afloat. But th this, is, this is what's at stake. And like this campaign is start. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, you, your choice is someone who's radically pro-choice, radically pro-environmental uh, agenda, radically uh, anti-Second Amendment rights, radically, uh, you know, for a big government takeover of health care, uh, would support Speaker Pelosi, et cetera, or someone that believes in the people of Texas and believes in 
you know, healthcare freedom, you choosing your doctors and take care of your family, making sure you can protect yourselves and importantly have a strong border. There's a big difference between us on that and the need to have a strong border uh, for the good of our country and the immigrants who seek to come here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you know, our podcast um, is geared towards women and we live in an era of identity politics, unfortunately, and we yeah. clearly see how Democrats disingenuous, disingenuously pander to women so we just want to say thank you so much for recognizing that all issues are women's issues. You made that clear in what you just said, uh, because every de decision made in Washington affects our lives in one way yeah. or, or another. What affects us affects our families, affects our spouses, and, and affects our neighbors. And so I think that's very important not to make a difference in, this, a, a, a difference in women's issues, but to make it as all of our issues. Well, I'm glad you said that, and that's exactly right. I, I, I'm not very uh, prone to use sort of those use phrases in, in that way. Um, I, I just kind of talk the way I, I think. Uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, I guess. But my general belief is, is that, um, you know, my job is to represent all of Texas 21. Uh, radical leftists in South Austin, Texas, or staunch conservatives in the Hill Country, or wherever it might be, um, my job is to represent the whole district. I believe freedom. I believe that limited government. I believe that empowering individuals. I believe that allowing people choice in schools. I believe that putting more money in the hands of business owners and people and taxpayers. I believe in a strong border and strong you know, national security, but used sparingly in defense of our nation and properly. I believe all of those things yield a much healthier and stronger community, which is good for men, women, grandparents, parents, uh, you know, uh, anybody of whatever race background they come from, the American dream, there's never been a better time to be alive in the, than there is today in the world, in terms of human prosperity, in terms of human flourishing, in terms of life expectancy, in terms of the medicines that are available, in terms of the life-saving procedures that are available. And all of that is a product of the great experiment that is America. And what we have done to spread that around the world, to give people opportunity to have that great American dream and to move up the ranks. And my, my Democratic opponents never want to talk about people moving up the ladder. They never want to talk about how people move through economic, um, you know, uh, stratospheres, being able to sort of, you know, move way up. And look, the opportunity in this country is extraordinary. And even in the face of this pandemic, the, op the, the entrepreneurs that are running around figuring out ways to make this work, the restaurants that adapted quickly, that were doing curb service quickly, businesses that got propped up to figure out how to do curb services for restaurants that don't know how to do it. Um, my next door neighbor, owns a donut shop in South Austin and they got hammered. So what they started doing was they kept making their donuts, they put them in their truck and they'd go to different uh, neighborhoods uh, each day. And so, you know, Monday became the whatever neighborhood. And, it went, and let me tell you, when everything was shut down, people flocked to go buy some donuts Yeah. because you go buy a dozen donuts and there they are and they're fresh and they're great donuts. So frankly, they made slightly more money during this, this than they were before. And that's great, right? That's what we do as Americans. We adapt, we don't, we don't retreat. We, we move forward and we figure out how to do it in the way we always have. And uh, I believe very much in civil society and how we help each other out best locally through our churches, our synagogues, our communities. You know, we should be more concerned about the veteran down the street than worrying about whether the VA is going to take care of all veterans, right? That's, I'm on the Veterans Affairs Committee. I'm going to go work to try to make the VA be as effective as it can be. But in many ways, that means getting it and government out of the way so that we can help each other out. One of the things we've learned in this pandemic, get a lot of these regulations that were in the way out of the way, yes. right? We've seen that with telemedicine. Yeah. Telemedicine didn't exist in the way it does today, two, three months ago. But 
we wiped out a lot of the barriers because we needed to do it. Great, now people are taking advantage of it. Why did that regulation exist in the first place? We should ask those questions. Mm -hmm. So have you introduced a bill in response to that? I have, uh, well observed by you, um, <laughs> that uh, I did introduce legislation to essentially make permanent all of the sort of waived regulations that President Trump has put in place. Um, and rather than letting those snap back into place, let's, let's put the default be that they're going to expire and that if Congress wants to re-accept those regulations, that we should have a process, I call it a reverse sunset commission, where the committee of jurisdiction can then say, hey, actually, this regulation is really important. Great. Put it before us and we can vote on it. Um, rather than just accepting all of these regulations pop back in place. I don't see any reason to make that be the default rather than, rather than flipping it on its head. And I think these are important things we should do. I also introduced legislation to provide tax benefits for companies that will move onshore and out of China to provide uh, medicine. I don't want to leave our medicine and healthcare at the hands of the Chinese. Um, and I want to make sure that uh, these companies have the ability to move here. Frankly, we used to have a much better tax climate uh, in this country, particularly in our territories, for uh, pharmaceutical companies to make drugs and for PPE and stuff to be manufactured here. A lot of that moved off to China. So we introduced the Beat China Act, which uh, dramatically changes the tax code in order to uh, give the opportunity for those companies to come back here. Hopefully, we've got a lot of interest and support in both of those bills, as well as the PPP fix bill that I hope to move through the floor uh, tomorrow. So we've been, we've been as active and legislatively over the last three months as I've been in my entire time in Congress. And my poor staff, they go, man, some folks are kind of viewing this as a break, and we've been working around the clock, and they really have. <laughs> Good. Well, you have a, a great staff. Um, can you give us a little insight into what um, our listeners may expect to see coming out of Washington over the next few months? Well, it's a great question, right? Uh, because we're now currently observing a new process, the proxy voting we've already covered and, and these right. kinds of things that it's sort of unclear. Uh, I'm afraid we're not going to be back here as often as we should. I think we should be meeting. I think we should be voting. I don't need to rehash that. But the things that fall through the cracks when you don't do that are truly competent hearings truly reviewing all of the things that are going on. What happened to the $25 billion we authorized to spend for testing? I mean, how's that being used? Is it being used well? Uh, we should know that, right? We should, mm -hmm. we should know uh, what's going on in New York and what happened with the whole putting uh, sick people back in nursing homes. We should figure out some of these things and, and then uh, adapt our policies accordingly. But to give you an answer, I think I'm hopeful that tomorrow's bill, if we pass it, can be a model for what can happen when two freshmen, a Democrat and a Republican, get together and decide we're not going to accept the smoky backroom deal making, uh, drop something on the floor of the House, take it or leave it approach to legislating. That the legislative approach matters, or process matters. That we should introduce a bill that we think is good, let the committees you know, work through it, and let's get it to the floor, and let's vote on it, and let's keep it simple. Fewer pages. Our bill is five pages. And the bill is designed to give flexibility where it's needed to the PPP that was already passed. We don't need a 2,300-page, $3 trillion monstrosity like Speaker Pelosi put on the floor of the House two weeks ago. We need common sense solutions. So I'm hopeful that we'll get more out of that and that we'll move forward in a bipartisan approach with some particularly freshmen, some of the younger members of the, of the House who want to see us actually do our job. And, um, but who knows, you know, we don't control it. And at the end of the day, the, the, it's, it's Speaker Pelosi's house. So we've got to work within those, those constructs. I don't know what's going to happen with the spending bills for the normal annual spending, which of course expire end of September. So my guess is there'll be a continuing resolution of some sort while we continue to navigate through the virus. 
Um, there'll be a few more debates on things like FISA, you know, the uh, intelligence issues that, that are front and center. We're going to have a vote today on, on FISA, I think, tonight. Um, you know, and I suspect that we'll, we'll uh, hopefully we'll get a defense appropriations bill and those kinds of things. But bottom line is not a whole lot is going to get done big <laughs> between now and the election. That's why this election is going to be really important. We've got a lot we need to do. And I, and I really hope that no matter what happens is that we get people in place next January who will sit down, roll their sleeves up, work to balance the budget, work to get health care freedom, work to protect our men and women in uniform, secure the border and get government out of the way. Get Washington out of the way of the American people. Yeah. Well, you said earlier that um, you just talk like you talk. So we just want to encourage you to keep talking like you're talking because you've sure inspired us and um, we hope our listeners as well. So thank you for being with us today um, and always just being a strong voice uh, who, as someone who cares about the rights and the freedoms of the American people. The reason I ran for office was because nine years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer and I came out the other end of, of that and with a, another shot at living. I, you know, pledged that I wanted to make sure I did everything I could, left everything on the table, everything on the field, if you will, to ensure that my kids and grandkids and so forth inherit at least as good or better a country as I inherit. Yeah. And we've got a lot we've got to do to make sure that happens. And I think the American people are tired of political talk. And what they want are people who will go there and, and do what they said they would do, not retreat to political corners and fight just for political purposes, but go fight for what you believe in. I'm happy to go down to the floor and fight with any Republican or Democrat in order to stand up for Texas, to stand up for my constituents. I have broken from the president in ways that he hasn't, let me just be honest, appreciated at every time. Um, but it's important to do that. I don't represent the president. I'm Article One. I represent the people of the 21st district of the state of Texas. That's it. And in that process, I probably align more with the policies coming out of the White House uh, yeah, much, much more than not, for sure, of course, for border security and for moving the, you know, uh, embassy to Jerusalem, maybe not a lot of judges that have been getting done, you know, uh, pro-growth tax policies, getting rid of regulations. Um, but where I disagree, I say it. And, and I've, I've been public about it. He made a criticism about my friend Thomas Massey when Thomas voted, forced to vote in March. And I told him to back off, my friend Thomas. It, you know, but, and somebody joked, one of our, uh, one of my friends joked and said, Man, is it a great country or what? Backbencher, <laughs> you know, member of Congress can, you know, kind of give a little brush back to the president of the United States. And you know what? Yes, that is what makes us great. Yes. Separation of powers, uh, representation, it matters. But, uh, but that's why I'm there and that's what I can intend to continue to do. Well, thank you. We appreciate your strong, independent voice, truly. Um, where can our listeners go to find more information about you and to join you in the fights you're fighting? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, on the personal slash political side, you can go over to chipperoy.com. And that's where, uh, you know, I've got anything going up there about the campaign. And we've got some information about where I stand on stuff there. And then on roy.house.gov, that's my official website where you can get speeches and bills and the things that we're working on. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, chipperoytx, C-H-I-P-R-O-Y-T-X. I have no idea what my Facebook or Instagram, any of that is, but you can Google it. Go see. We'll I, I do Twitter. Everybody else does those other things. I never get on Facebook. Kara just shows me pictures of my friends, kids, <laughs> and, you know, shows them to me. I'm, I'm like a, you know, grandpa on those things. But, but Twitter, I get out there and follow my news. And so when you see me tweeting, it's, it, it's, it's me. So well, um, anyway, that's what you can do. Follow me over there. Very good. 
Well, thanks for joining us today. And thank you listeners for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your friends. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and at, at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.